for our Advent sermons uh, leading up to Christmas. We'll be in Matthew chapter 1 and 2, Lord willing. We'll be opening that up this morning. So if you take your copy of God's Word, go to Matthew chapter 1. <clears throat> Excuse me. You know, in our society, not much comes automatically to someone due to their family name. Uh, neither the presidency nor any other role of government is passed on by succession from father to son. And by design, uh, this system is supposed to be based more on a person's individual qualifications, their own merits, and not by mere heredity. Uh, likewise, the sons of doctors, lawyers, coal miners, or pastors do not necessarily have to also become doctors, lawyers, coal miners, or pastors. Sometimes that happens, uh, but not necessarily. Uh, and an even more foreign scenario to us would be something about your parents closing doors of opportunity for you. Uh, like the idea, no, 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 you can't be a lawyer uh, because your father was a coal miner, right? Uh, that's the antithesis of the American dream, isn't it? Right? Like we, we, uh, it's the land of opportunity that we live in where an individual uh, can always rise above the station in which they were born. So many American success stories involve someone born in poverty that work their way up to prosperity. Uh, and so that's kind of the context in which we live. So in our context, the following story may sound very strange. Ezra chapter 2 records the first of the Jewish exiles returning to Jerusalem after the exile, uh, the exile that we talked about in our study of the prophet Haggai. That chapter provides family names and the number of people who returned. It's very specific. The sons of Perosh, 2,172. Uh, the sons of Shephatiah, 372. The sons of Ara, 775, and so on. I'm not going to read the rest of that chapter. Uh, these people had record of specific tribal lineage from before the exile all the way back to the original families in Israel. Uh, but some people had come to the land with them um, that could not prove their father's houses or their descent. There were, there were blanks in their lineage. They didn't know who their great-grandfather or great-great-grandfather was and whether they truly belonged to Israel. And there were 652 of these individuals. They claimed to be of a priestly line. And they wanted to be included in the community and in the priestly service at the temple, right? They wanted to serve God. That's good, right? That's a good thing. But since they could not find their registration in the official genealogies, the text says they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. And the governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food, like the privilege of the priests, they were not to partake of the most holy food until a legitimate priest could consult the Lord for an answer to this problem. Are they really who they think they are, right? It's not a matter of malice. It's just, are they really of these families and qualified to serve or are they not? And when they couldn't prove it, they weren't allowed to serve. And the reason for that is according to the law in Numbers chapter three, verse 10, if they had served or eaten that food illegitimately, they were to be put to death as in an unclean way, violating uh, the law and the priesthood of God. It was a serious matter. 
And all this to say that in the nation of, nation of Israel, in that context, legitimate family connections did matter. And they mattered a great deal. It may not matter in America, uh, but it did matter in Israel. Not just anyone could be a priest. Only men from certain families of the tribe of Levi and the family of Aaron were qualified to serve. And not just anybody could be king, really, either. The, the promised king of God's people, he had been promised to come from the tribe of Judah and the family of David. Genealogies are lists of family names. Uh, so-and-so is the father of so-and-so, who became, becomes the father of so-and-so, and such and such, and on and on. It's the stuff that if you're doing a reading, yearly Bible reading plan, you're like, oh, Chronicles? Okay, when do we get to, when do we get to the, the good stories again? There's some mixed in there. It's easy for us in our context to be like, this just doesn't matter. It does matter. It mattered a great deal to those people, and it matters to us whether we recognize it or not. In that culture, it influenced a person's livelihood and their future in their culture according to God's law. The Gospel of Matthew, where we'll be today, begins with the genealogy of Jesus Christ. In order to prove that Jesus was qualified by lineage to be the king of Israel, he was part of the right family. He had not been, he would have been disqualified from accomplishing his office, receiving office that he is of king, the promised one. There are two specific connections Matthew wants to emphasize, and he provides them for us in verse one. I always appreciate it when scriptural authors kind of say before or after they make a point, when they're like, by the way, this was the point I was making. Here at the outset, he's like, here's what I'm gonna prove. This is the book, this whole thing. This is the book of the genealogy of the book of Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And even if you haven't read the Old Testament in a while, I trust that those two names stick out to you, David and Abraham. In the 16 verses that follow, which will be our passage for today, Matthew outlines Jesus' ancestors, starting with Abraham and ending with Joseph, the husband of Jesus' mother Mary and Jesus' adoptive father. If you were to look up the names in this list, you would find yourself surveying the entire Old Testament, which we're actually going to try to do today. <laughs> uh, we're not going to look at each name, mention each name, uh, but I'm going to fly over and occasionally zoom down in on some of them. Uh, I hope to remind you of a few Bible stories that you have probably heard, and as I think is really important, I want to put them in chronological context so you can see this, uh, the sequence of those things leading up to the birth of Jesus. Matthew's point in introducing this book, this long list of names, this book, which is a theological biography. So the Gospels are the theological biography. It's not just here's all the stories about Jesus, but they're all trying to get a point across. And Matthew's point is Jesus is God's king, is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. And so in setting the stage for that in a prologue, as it were, of chapters one and two prior to his ministry, uh, beginning in chapter three, with John the Baptist, Jesus' baptism, and, and so on, the point that, John, that Matthew, excuse me, wants to make is this. Jesus is the fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies, specifically ones made to Abraham, promises made to Abraham, promises made to David. They all are driving us to Jesus, the Messiah, the, the King, the Christ, 
So all in all, we have two points to make and understand from this passage. I've already mentioned them. First, Jesus is the promised son of Abraham. And second, Jesus is the promised son of David. Promised son of Abraham and the promised son of David. First, Jesus is the promised son of Abraham. Uh, We first meet Abraham at the end of Genesis 11, uh, when he was still called Abram. Uh, We often think of the Abraham that would be when we think of Abraham, the the one who uh, would be the father of all who would believe, uh, the one who is justified by his faith in the promises of God. But when we first meet him in Genesis 11, uh, he's just another idolater until God calls him. And that call takes place in Genesis 12, uh, where the biblical story centers in on him and continues to focus on him and his family for the rest of the Old Testament, and really the rest of Scripture. Hear God's word to Abraham, to Abram at that point in Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. As Abram journeys, God continues to make covenant promises to him. Chapters 12 and 13 and 15 and 17 and and 18. And then in chapter 22, verse 16, he says this, By myself... I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, talking about that offering of Isaac, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offsprings as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And here is this key promise that's been repeated a few times. In your offspring, and that word offspring, sometimes translated seed, It's a very picturesque term of the one who would come from Abraham bodily, physically. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. What's the summary of the point about Abraham here? It's it's that through Abraham's family will God's blessing come to the world and only through Abraham's family family. So, in order for Jesus to be the source of God's blessing to all the nations on the earth, raise your hand if you are part of one of the nations of the earth. This was an alien extraterrestrial test. Uh, Raise your hand if you're not a part of the family. No, just thank you. I knew, knew somebody would. In order for Jesus to be the source of God's blessings to all the nations of the earth, including us, he, Jesus, had to be a descendant of Abraham, which he was, as Matthew will go on to demonstrate. And Paul makes this connection explicit for us when he wrote to the Galatians. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you, Abraham, shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And uh, Paul also says, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And I love this. It does not say, and to offsprings. 
referring to many, but referring to one. This is the point I was trying to make about that seed. To one and to your offspring, which is Christ. Paul reads all those promises, Genesis 12, 13, 15, 17, 18, 22, and he knows that God's promise to Abraham was pointing forward thousands of years to Jesus in whom those promises would be fulfilled. We go back to the text, Matthew chapter one, starting in verse two. You can kind of follow around and periodically, like I said, I'll stop. The names will be up here. You don't have to write them down because they're already in scripture for you. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Jacob was also called Israel. Lots of people had, God changed lots of people's names back then. Uh, He had 12 sons from his four wives, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. Reuben, the oldest, should have been chief among his brothers, but he slept with one of his father's wives and forfeited his privilege and birthright. Instead, that privilege fell to Judah, about whom his father Jacob prophesied in Genesis 49. He says this, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, families of the earth, nations, peoples, So we see that promise made to Abraham has now been funneled through Isaac, through Jacob to Judah. So Reuben was a loser, but Judah, and he must have been a really, really great guy to receive this promise instead of his wicked brother, right? I mean, Judah must have had it all together. Not exactly. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Who is Tamar? Well, Tamar was not Judah's wife. Tamar had been married to Judah's son, and Judah's son God put to death because of his wickedness. Tamar was then given as a wife to Judah's next son, also wicked, who God also put to death. Not going very well. Judah had a third son who should have had Tamar as his wife, but Judah wanted to keep his third son and She's some sort of a black widow or something like that. He didn't want him to die. Uh, So he really didn't plan to keep that promise uh, to to wait till he grows up or until you die. And I can give him to somebody else because I don't want him to die. It's kind of the, the plan here. Judah apparently was not planning to keep his promise. Tamar recognized this was the case. So she disguised herself as a prostitute. Judah slept with her and she became pregnant with twin boys, Perez and Zerah. We're establishing the kingly line of Jesus the Messiah. And if you were doing that, I don't think you would have wanted to include that story. I wouldn't want that. If that was in my family tree, be like, if you're writing a biography, it's like, can we just skip what happens at that point? God's chosen king in his history. Yeah. And there's that prostitution and sleeping with your daughter-in-law. Not pleasant yet, as one author put it, every sordid deed and sinful practice to which this genealogy alludes served God's mysterious purpose. The sins are acknowledged so that the divine grace that forgives them may be magnified. I think that's a good reminder. We'll circle back to that. Matthew chapter 1, I think I'm in verse 3 at this point. 
Perez was the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. This Rahab, the only reason to mention Rahab is Rahab that we know from the Old Testament, who was the prostitute from Jericho that protected the Israelite spies in Joshua chapter 2. And for this act of faith in the Lord, she was spared from being killed in the destruction of Jericho. And she was welcomed into the people of Israel. Although this is not recorded in Joshua, apparently Rahab also married an Israelite named Salmon, and they had a son named Boaz. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. The love story of Boaz and Ruth is found in the book of Ruth, which is a wonderful story of a Gentile woman, yet again. Now we have three Gentile women brought into Jesus' family line. A Gentile woman from Moab, a widow of an Israelite, who renounces her people's gods and joins the Israelite community. And she meets a relative of her dead husband who redeems her, marries her, and they have a son named Obed. And in case you've lost count, we've now been introduced to three women in Jesus' family line. All of them were Gentiles, and two of them were prostitutes. Let's move on. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of David, the king. That's verse 6. David, the king. And so we've arrived at our second point. The first, so you can see at the top, is that Jesus is the promised son of Abraham. The second point is that Jesus is the promised son of David. So hopefully you recall in different ways, try to say that why it was important. Jesus was the son of Abraham because God had made promises to Abraham about blessing coming to all the earth through his offspring. Jesus must be related to Abraham. And then we see the same type of promises, even more specific promises made to David. Those promises are found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We all know David the king, right? The shepherd boy who killed the giant Goliath and was crowned king in place of Saul. God spoke of him as a man after his own heart. After God had established David's kingdom, peace uh, through conquest, David settled the city of Jerusalem, the city of David, had built a, a castle, fortress for himself, a home for himself to live in, in comfort and to rule. And as he looked over things, he recognized, you know, I have this nice house where God is living and living. God's dwelling place is a tent, a tent that he ordained, but this just doesn't seem right to David. And his heart for God and his longing for glorious worship for God, David wanted to build a temple for the worship of God to replace the tabernacle, replace the tent here was God's response to David in 2 Samuel 7. This is God speaking again. I took you, David, from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. You want to make me a house? I'm going to make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men. 
with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure, fixed, steadfast, permanent. Your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. The promised blessing for all nations that God promised to send through Abraham's son will now come through a king from the line of David. This king would be God's anointed one, right? Oil poured on the head to signify who would be king. An anointed one in Hebrew is the word Messiah. Messiach, or something fun like that, because it has some cooler sounds than our language does. That's what Hebrew for anointed one is. So in order for Jesus to be Israel's king, in order for Jesus to be our king, he had to be a descendant of David, which he was, as Matthew will go on to demonstrate. David, David was a pretty awesome guy, if you think of it, right? I mean, he wrote psalms of praise to God that we We're going to sing one of them later. Psalm 65, written by David. He trusted God to kill his enemies, even impossible enemies. He waited on God's timing to become king. He longed to solidify the worship of God among his people. And then he committed adultery with a married woman and had her husband murdered. Wait a minute. that uh, not, Not exactly the awesome guy that we had hoped. He certainly is not. The Messiah, yet another story. We would rather skip, but God does not. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. We know her as Bathsheba. It doesn't say Bathsheba, though. It says the wife of Uriah so that we don't miss that story. We don't just breeze past it. Oh, Bathsheba, that's nice. That's his wife's name. Move on. No, the wife of Uriah, drawing our attention to this David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. This symbol, there's a red X and a green check mark as we go through is whether this king was wicked or might just call him a loser or whether he was righteous and faithful. That's the green check mark just so you can keep track. Rehoboam was the son of Solomon. Such a foolish king that the people of God were divided into two separate kingdoms during his reign. David had his sin and demonstrated repentance. Solomon had had wisdom and yet descended into idolatry. Rehoboam uh, refused to listen to wise counsel and acted in wickedness. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Uh, In the Old Testament, you also hear his name is Abijam. Uh, He was wicked. Abijah was the father of Asaph or Asa, and he was good. We got some positives. All right, we are back on track. Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. Nice. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, or Jehoram, who was wicked. And at this point, if you were to follow along with Matthew in the Old Testament, uh, you'd be in 2 Kings chapter 8. We've fast-forwarded from Joshua, from Judges and Samuel, all the way over to 2 Kings chapter 8. And as you continued following along, you'd find out Matthew doesn't include everyone in his genealogy. He actually skips over a few generations here and there, for the sake of a certain organizational structure that he's introducing, which we'll talk about more later. In between this and the next king, he he doesn't mention a king and a queen that were both awful, followed by two kings that were both really good. Too bad, too good. 
Uh, there really isn't a scorecard here. He continues to say the father of, but this word can also mean relative, like grandfather. So it's not like Matthew made a mistake in just like chapters of his Bible, like there was a scroll missing or, or it was a little bit blurred or something, and he thought that, that Joram was the biological father of Uzziah, the next king that he's going to mention. Like he, he knows, but he's, he's uh, that can also, like I mean, descendant of, or it descended down to him. So he didn't make a mistake. He didn't misread his Bible. He's just forming a certain structure. Joram, I'm in verse 8 of Matthew 1. Joram, the father of Uzziah or Azariah, he was good. Uzziah, the father of Jotham, he was good. Jotham, the father of Ahaz, he was bad. Walked in wickedness. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, he was good again. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, who was awful. Three red X, awful. I mean, the apple fell super far from the tree, uh, and then it, it rotted to pieces between Hezekiah and reforms and revival and renewal of God's people and to Manasseh. King Hezekiah's father had responded to the threat of the massive army of Assyria who had conquered Israel, now comes and threatens Jerusalem. Hezekiah responds by praying to God for deliverance. It's a beautiful prayer you can read about in the Old Testament. God responded to this prayer by sending the angel of the Lord who killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. It's like, it's that cool phrase, and when they woke up, they were all dead. <laughs> it's like, wow. Then his son Manasseh undid every religious reform that his father Hezekiah had initiated. He worshiped Baal, he worshiped Asherah, he worshiped the host of heaven. He even burned one of his infant sons alive as an offering, which was a practice in the worship of the false god Molech. And there's no other way of reading that. This is this statue that had arms like this and had a hole in the stomach where a fire was burned. And you would take the son, you'd take the infant, you would place it on the arms and it would roll in. That's how far Manasseh fell from the tree and led God's people into that type of worship. He led Israel, God's chosen people, he led them into more idolatrous wickedness than the Canaanites who had lived in the land before them. The people who had lived there were so idolatrous, God was going to kick them out of the land, right? And, and God had said earlier, that, you know, their sin hasn't reached the top of it, so you've got to go to Egypt for a few hundred years, and then I know their wickedness is going to continue to build, and then I will annihilate them, right? God extends mercy and long-suffering to them as their sin continues. But they have been so wicked, God expels the Canaanites from the land, and now Manasseh has led them into worse idolatry than the original inhabitants of the land. God responded to this by saying, Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. It's like, you know what God did to his sinful people? It, it'll make you shudder, shudder. It'll give you goosebumps. Just like, ah. But their sin had descended so far that this was what they were worthy of. But the kingly line leading to Jesus continues. Manasseh was the father of Amos or Ammon, who also was in, lived in wickedness like his father. Amos was the father of Josiah. Josiah was, was awesome. Josiah 
made radical last-ditch efforts to try to bring God's people back. Things were so bad, if I recall the story correctly, that the priests of God, serving in the temple of God, had to go into a closet in order to, like, what's this scroll? Oh, Genesis? Exodus? Leviticus? Deuteronomy? Numbers? Deuteronomy? I know the order. Uh, God, God gave us writings? We had no idea. And it's like, hey, Josiah, you gotta hear some of this stuff. Maybe he goes, starts at the end, goes to Deuteronomy chapter 28. If my people, if you fail to keep covenant promises, listen to the curses that are come, gonna come on you, and Josiah's eyes get huge. Like, we are in trouble. So he starts tearing down high places and tearing down idolatrous thrones, which, which in the temple precinct, in the temple area, Right, these beautiful things, these, these beautiful uh, pieces of furniture set up for the uh, worship of God, altars and basins and things like that. They, earlier kings like Manasseh had just taken, hey, let's just move that over to the side, right? So it's like, oh, they, they walk in, it's like, oh yeah, this pulpit? Yeah, we don't need that. Let's just push that over. So we're not gonna come to the Lord's table anymore. We're not gonna do baptism. We're not gonna, we're not gonna preach the word. We're gonna do something completely different. You know, some churches do that. Um, Roman Catholic Church moved the pulpit and put something else forward, just, just be honest. Um, they made something secondary, primary on those type of things. But they, idolatrously, like what you see in worship matters. They just push that stuff to the side. And in, right outside of the entrance to the temple, they set up altars to worship false gods. They're brazen about it. And Josiah is trying to undo all of these things. He was a good king. He was the last good king, but it wasn't enough to stop God's judgment. God speaks to him, just kind of like, I won't punish them in your generation, but it's still coming. This isn't enough. Josiah was the father of Jeconiah, also known as Coniah, a Jehoiakim. Talked about him two weeks ago at the end of Haggai. Je Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. So once more, Matthew skipped over a couple of kings, but both of them were also evil. Jesus, the son of Abraham. Jesus is the promised son of David. And the third part of this story doesn't really tie us to a particular person, like Abraham or David, it does take us uh, from captivity in Babylon to the birth of Jesus. This is the post-captivity section. After the deportation to Babylon, uh, verse 12, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Hopefully Zerubbabel sounds familiar. Uh, I, have, uh, I have lollipops, dum-dum suckers, basket of them in my office. Um, uh, after the gathering, you're like, oh, the kids all love their pastor, Peter. They all just flock to him. Like, they just want the suckers, which is why I have the suckers. But uh, they all come in, but they have to do something to earn the suckers because, you know, salvation's by grace, but suckers are by law. <laughs> and so sometimes it's like, tell me something about training hour. Tell me something from the Bible. Tell me something from the gathering. A few weeks ago, I mentioned a bunch of names. I said, you got to tell me one character that I talked about in this. And so one, uh, one young person, I'm not going to draw attention to who they were because I don't have permission to tell this story with their name, uh, tried their best to say Zerubbabel, and uh, it didn't quite work. They got a too many bubbas, too many bubbles uh, were in there, but they tried, you know, God bless them. Bless their heart. They tried to get We got there. He got a sucker for it, though. It was okay. There's a little bit of grace in there. But Zerubbabel was a key 
character in the book of the prophet Haggai. He was the governor of Judah, the one to whom God spoke his promise. Do you remember this? To renew the kingly promises to David. Jeconiah had been that ring that was taken off and chucked into Babylon. It looked like the line had ended. And then God says, I'm going to take you. I'm going to take that ring because you are the line of David. I'm going to put it back on my finger. I will make you like a signet, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. And so ends the prophecy made to Haggai. Zerubbabel was the father of Abiad. Abiad, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Eliad. Eliad, the father of Eliezer. Eliezer, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. If you thought we were going to skim genealogy, we didn't skim Psalm 119. Certainly not going to skim this. This is the inspired word of God. We're going to go through it. After Zerubbabel, though, we have a list of names found nowhere else in Scripture. Matthew must have had access to some sort of genealogy source that has since been lost. Uh, but it was genuine. It's inspired by God and given to us in his word. But that, uh, that list of names traces Jesus' family line across 400 years of silence from God's final prophetic word to Malachi to the angelic announcements that were recorded in Luke made to Zechariah, Mary, and Joseph in the opening chapters of the gospel. And this family line all leads up to Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Jesus, the son of Abraham, promised son of Abraham, promised son of David. Also, although not biologically or genetically Joseph's son, but, and we'll talk about that more next week in the next passage of this, but legally, by adoption, Joseph's kingly heritage was passed on to Jesus. So he qualifies for the office that he was sent to occupy, the office of, of king, of Messiah, of Christ, of God's anointed one. We get to verse 17, the end of this passage. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And it's kind of like if you were, if Matthew was reading this, he'd be like, he's like, isn't that neat? And we're all like, what are you talking about? No, 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 no. 14 generations, right? We're like, yeah, what are you talking about? That's a great question. It's admittedly a bit of a strange verse to understand. There are a variety of opinions that flow out from it, as with many disputed passages. Um, I already mentioned briefly, when, when we compare these, this genealogy, we go back to the scriptural record. The records that Matthew was using, it's obvious that he's skipping people. He does not list every single generation from Abraham to Jesus. And again, that doesn't make it dishonest. This is just the way that these lists were compiled. 
So he skips some, and we're not sure exactly why. I mean, he didn't just skip all the bad ones, and he didn't just skip all the good ones, because he skipped over good ones, and he skipped over bad ones. Uh, But the reason that he's doing it, at least part of it, has to do with the structure that he explains in this verse, in verse 17, that having it in groups of 14 generations was important to him. He wanted to organize these three sections of Jesus' heritage, Abraham to David, David to the deportation or the exile, and then the exile to Jesus being born. He wanted to organize them into groups of 14, so he narrowed available names down to do that. He talks about the groups of 14 knowing, I believe, that his original readers would have understood the significance of that number. And so I'm sure his original Jewish audience was like, oh yeah, 14, of course. And we're just not part of that original audience. And to his extended audience, like 21st century Americans, it's less than obvious. So I don't want to really want to belabor this point, because really the point is Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. But I think there are two uh, reasonable options for why 14 is so important. Uh, one of them, seven, is the number of, of perfection or wholeness. Uh, 14 is seven times two, double seven makes 14. So this could have something to do with the extra perfection of God's plan that arrives at Jesus. Okay, Uh, there's another option, uh, but it's also kind of cool, but also kind of sounds weird to us. Uh, But there was a common practice of using Hebrew letters to represent numbers, and those numbers uh, then have significance, drawing a point to it. So, 14. If you take the D in David, it is the fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Um, Hebrew didn't write with vowels. Uh, They wrote in consonants, and they had vowels that were assumed and then added later by other scribes. In case you want to see that, I can show you in in my Hebrew Bible. So the D is the fourth letter, so four, and the V uh, is the sixth letter, so four plus six, and you have another D, and a four, so D plus V plus D is four plus six plus four, which equals, anybody really good at following along with math? 14. And, And you're probably like, what? And I'm also kind of like, what? Uh, and, and people do weird stuff with those kind of number things. Be like, oh, we look at letters and count chapters and we count verses. Then all of a sudden, Jesus is coming back in 1981. And it's like, but he didn't. So you can do some weird stuff with this. But, uh, well, what's the emphasis on David? It's like, well, David is the emphasis on David. So if this is what Matthew's trying to communicate, and his audience would have known that, it's just another way of making the point that David is, that Jesus is the Davidic king, which everyone had been looking for and promises had been made, and it is significant. And as Matthew's point throughout his gospel that Jesus is the Christ, the king, and the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven coming through him, that kingness, he wasn't a king from Abraham. He's a blessing from Abraham. He was a king through David. So maybe that's the point that Matthew is trying to make. But thankfully, understanding this is not necessary to our salvation. Uh, So we can differ in our understanding of it. One of those two options might be right. uh, Both could be wrong. And I'm really not that concerned about it. Just be honest. I trust that Matthew and the Holy Spirit who inspired him knew what he was talking about. Gentile prostitutes, adulterous murderers, wicked idolaters, and numerous faceless names These are the ancestors, humanly speaking, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Many of them couldn't even be said to have had faith in God at all. Yet, across all these generations, 
from God's call to Abraham in Genesis 12 to an angelic announcement to Joseph that we'll talk about next week, God was clearly and undeniably at work to send his son into the world in fulfillment of his promises. And when we look at this long list, we think of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years that passed between promises made and promises kept or the fulfillment of those promises, a huge time distance. We should be reminded that while God is not in a hurry, he is always faithful to fulfill his promises. Yahweh, the Lord of of hosts, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh never forgets or abandons his promises to Abraham and to David, but he brings them through the course of history to their appointed goal. All of those stories, all of those names, God was at work. And Jesus, the promised son of Abraham, the promised son of David, the Messiah, he has now come. And as surely as it was a long time between promises made and Jesus coming to fulfill that, he is likewise coming Again, Those promises were made a long time ago. Yeah, they were. God is faithful to keep his promises. And when we look at this list of names and we see it full of unworthy sinners, even the best of them still sinners, we should not be surprised for it was to a world of sinners that God sent his son in order to save sinners like them And like us, it wasn't a line of perfection and it's not a line from Christ of perfect people that would follow him. It's sinners leading up to him and sinners who would believe in him because God sent him into the world to save sinners. And we think through this, we need to keep in mind that God is faithful and God saves sinners. And when we see this family line full of scandal and sin, we can also be encouraged because, let's be honest, such were some of you. And such were some of your family members. Stories that we don't want to share. Stories that if our biography was written, we would hope were left out. Things that we have done, things that those that lead up to us have done. But in the kingdom of God, sins that you have committed, sins that your family members have committed, those things do not disqualify you from forgiveness. They do not disqualify you from full participation in God's family for those who come to him in faith. For, as Paul writes to the Romans, where sin increases or has increased, grace increases all the more. If you come to Christ by faith, your sinful past, as well as the sinful past of your ancestors, is wiped clean by the blood of Christ. You are as righteous as Jesus is righteous. And this is why he came into the world, to save sinners like us and to save sinners like his own family members. And he came for that reason, full knowledge of what our sin would be. So we say thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. God is faithful to forgive sinners who trust in his son, Jesus Christ, who is the son of Abraham, 
who is the son of David, who is our crucified Savior, and who is our risen King. Lord God, we thank you for your word and the reminders of the promises that you made to your people that all are fulfilled in Jesus. All of your promises find their, their yes and their amen, their let it be so in, in Jesus. May we not look to ourselves, may we not look to other family members, uh, may we look to Jesus as the one who will save us from our sins. And please do open the eyes of those who uh, don't care who Jesus is, not just if they don't find uh, a genealogy interesting, but if they don't, they, they aren't convinced of the importance of who Jesus is and what he accomplished. Please open their eyes to see that and to believe. Uh, may that be so today. May your grace abound in the lives of sinners such as us. Amen.